Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part, a Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons, Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Friesen, and Bill Hostler. Everybody and welcome to another exciting episode of Meet, Act, and Part. This is episode 41. And hey, we've got a special guest tonight, most worshipful brother Russ Smith from the Grand Lodge of Idaho. But first, let's introduce your hosts. My name is Greg Knott. And I'm Bill Hostler. And hi, I'm Darren Laners. Just want to thank Russ for coming on. Uh, I connected with Russ. Uh, I took a recent trip uh, out west and ended up in on my way to Craters of the Moon uh, National Monument. Ended up in Arco, Idaho, and which was the very first city that was powered by atomic power. And I found the Masonic Lodge there. Had reached out to their Grand Secretary and ended up talking to uh, Russ, who at that. I think Rush, you were just had been installed as Grandmaster of uh, Idaho, and we just kind of had this conversation. And Russ helped contribute some material for the Midnight Freemason blog. So, Russ, thank you again for coming on. And why don't you uh, just kind of go over your Masonic bio for us and let us know uh, when you joined, you know, what made you want to become a Mason and things of that nature? Sure. Yeah, not a problem. This is Russ Smith. Uh, I live in Arco, Idaho. And I am currently the Grandmaster of Masons in Idaho. Always joked about the guys that they had a poor judge of character moving, appointing me and then electing me up the line. But I do appreciate uh, the brothers giving me this honor. So anyway, I was initiated in Prince Mason in December of 1981, passed to a fellow craft in January of 1982, and then raised to a Master Mason in February of 1982. I completed my Master Mason proficiency in March of 1982. And then received my full master certificate. I got my warden certificate early on. Um, then got busy going to college, transferred colleges, and didn't do much. But then received my full master certificate in September of 2002. Was elected and served as worshipful master from December 2009 until December 2018 at Mount McCaleb Lodge number 64 in Mackey. I affiliated with the uh, Arco Lodge number 48 as a plural member in March 1998 and served as secretary in Arco from December uh, 2009 until the lodge closed just this last year in December 2020. I served as district deputy grandmaster in September from S- September of 2002 until September 2006. That's usually a kind of a two-year stint, but we're kind of short on individuals in the first district. And so I put in four years and one of the other brothers put in five or six. So anyway, then was appointed as grand persuivant in 2011 and then was appointed and elected through up the chairs uh, through the Grand Lodge line. It's a progressive line for about 11 years and was installed as the most worshipful grandmaster of Idaho, uh, ancient free and accepted masons on September 17th, this year of 2021. So just a little bit about why I joined Masonry. I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but it is what it is. Uh, My reason for joining Freemasonry was kind of different than most. I actually joined Freemasonry to get my dad out of it. I was raised in a strong uh, born-again Christian family. My dad was a born-again Christian and joined the fraternity in 1967. He received a lot of flack 
from certain individuals in the church about being in Freemasonry. And most of you are probably familiar that the ultra-conservative Christian movement kind of used, used Freemasonry as a cult. He didn't like to talk about it much because it, it caused conflict. And I remember saving up my money when I was around 16 years old, and I ordered some cassette tapes from the Reverend Jim Shaw, a 33rd degree Mason who explained all the evils of Freemasonry. You guys are probably very familiar with this. I was alarmed at this, and I searched kind of diligently for more information, but we didn't have the internet back then, so it was kind of limited. But I felt that I kind of needed to educate my father in this manner. Uh, he served as District Deputy Grandmaster, and he was appointed to the Grand Lodge line as the Persuaven in 1973. He was Senior Grand Warden when I became a Master Mason, and I thought it would be a great testimony if he left Masonry as a Grand Lodge officer, you know, elected officer. So I joined Freemasonry for the wrong reason, in a sense, but to find out the truth about it. I study and I research all kinds of accusations against the fraternity, and most of them are untrue. The others are basically misunderstandings of what we teach or different meanings of words. And as a result, I've never found anything in Freemasonry that con contradicts my beliefs. In fact, the teachings in Freemasonry help enhance uh, my biblical and moral beliefs. I'm currently a member of the Scottish Rite and the Shriners, and I'm a dad advisor for the Demolay chapter and associate guardian of Job's daughter's Bethel. I will probably petition and plan on joining the York Rite uh, later this Masonic year. And that's kind of a, 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 in a brief nutshell, my Masonic bio and background and information. Well, that is such a fascinating story. <clears throat> that's not at all, well, you know, what I, what I've expect, you know, what normally a lot of the guests just kind of roll off like we all do. I'm in this body and that, but that is such an interesting story of how you came into the craft and here, you know, 35, 40 years later, end up being the grandmaster of, you know, one of the jurisdictions. And to me, if, if, if anything, that's the ultimate proof of you disproving all the, the hype and, you know, hyperbole that, you know, the, 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 the tapes were trying to tell you from that, you know, the reverend. So, yeah, well, and I do, I, I try to study, I like to read anti-Masonic literature because it's one of the things where their, their understanding and our understanding of words is completely different. And I can't convince them that what I'm telling them is the truth. A lot of those folks already have their own mind made up because of falsehoods and lies that they've heard somebody else say, and they just want to believe it. Well, let us tell you a little story, and then I'm gonna have I'm gonna ask Darren to kind of maybe go a little more in depth on it. But around in, in Illinois and in the Midwest specifically, there's been a group going to each lodge and leaving on the door a manifesto that's probably similar in nature to you know what you were talking about that you know you were referencing. And I'm gonna ask Darren to jump back in because he's really kind of studied what that was about and. And it's similar, I think, Russ, to what you were uh, talking about. Yeah. And go, go ahead, Darren. Well, I mean, Greg kind of said it. So from what I what my understanding is, is that this pamphlet basically has been around 20 to 30 years and it's just being recycled. But it's the normal, uh, you know, taking things that Pike set out of context 
I, uh, Ross, I'll be honest with you. I took, I took photos of it and I have it on a share drive. I'll, I'll be more than happy to, to, uh, send you the link to that so you can peruse it yourself. But it, it's the normal stuff that you expect. Uh, you know, of course, the whole, uh, when Pike's talking about Lucifer being the, the morning star and basically essentially talking about the planet Venus, but using his, uh, hyperbolic, uh, you know, language and, uh, the way that he writes. The funny thing about it that, that kind of cracked me up is that, uh, they're, they're basing, you know, their understanding of Freemasonry on this document that was written, you know, well over 150 years ago. But also here in Illinois, we're part of the Northern Masonic jurisdiction for the Scottish Rite. So we're not as adherent to, to Pike as, as, uh, you know, as the Southern jurisdiction is, but it clearly states on like the second page of their manifesto that it's, you know, Southern jurisdiction, a Scottish right. And it's just, it's, it's the, you know, typical, let's take whatever we can out of context to make our argument and, and, uh, throw some, uh, biblical verse on there and, um, try to convince, uh, the Freemasons that they're bad. So. Uh, I'll be, like I said, I'll send you, I'll, uh, pull up that link to my share drive where I have those pictures and send it to you. You can, uh, check it out for yourself. No, that, that, that'd be great. Yeah. Cause I know, well, in here a few years, years, years ago, get my tongue tied, but when I was a junior grand deacon or senior grand deacon, anyway, gave a presentation at the Rocky Mountain Masonic Conference on defending Freemasonry. And one of the instances in there I took, and I wished I had it, I, you know, could pull it up, but um, had it in front of me. But anyway, Albert Pike was talking, and the individuals that were saying that this was a reference to the sun god Ball as to what he was saying there. And I'm, I'm reading through that, and I'm going, you know, you read that paragraph, when you get to the end of it, and you guys have read probably enough of Albert Pike, that when you get to the end of a paragraph, you're trying to say, what did he just say? You know, but you can read anything into it you want to. Well, so I thought, I'm just curious. I'll, I'll go back and I'll look. And so you go back about five or six paragraphs before that, and he uses different words to, to reference or indicate God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, the Jesus. And he's, he's using those words kind of interchangeably. And so when you get down to that, you read down through that whole paragraph and you're going, okay, well, he's talking about God the Father here. Then he references what the, the word that he was using for the, the spirit. And then he references, you know, something else for the son. Well, then it, 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 I mean, you're looking at that and you're going, okay, well, then that paragraph that they cherry picked out of that and just use that as a reference. It, it's not even it's not even close to what they're talking about. If they would have gone back and they would have looked, you know, at the previous five or six paragraphs and followed the flow of of Pike's um, train of thought as he was writing down through that, it would have made perfect sense. You know, and it's no different when we uh, when we study the Bible. You, I mean, you could cherry pick verses out of the Bible and you could make that sound like the most evil um, book there is in a sense. But you always got to put the verse in context. So you read the verse before it, you read that verse, you read the verse after it. And then, then if there's any questions as to its meaning, 
you typically have to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew words and try to pick those out so that you can get the, the root knowledge of what the author's trying to say. So, yeah, I, I totally understand where you're talking about, you know, just cherry picking and, and um, bringing out points that they want to expound on. And it's kind of like they use the shotgun approach. We just throw all the kind of, all kinds of baloney at the wall. And we hope that one of those sticks without ever sticking around and just actually having a nice cordial conversation to discuss it because most of them, they're not even open to listening to the truth. Yeah. It's, it's almost, you know, the era you're talking about, of course, was, you know, 150 years ago. Oh, yeah. And so here today, we think that Facebook is so novel with all its misinformation. And really, as I hear what you're describing and I think about it, it's like, well, nothing changes. Maybe the technology platform changed from. No, it, yeah, the lies and the mistruths that um, Leo Taxel published years ago, you know, those are still being spread around and they're still being put forth against uh, uh, the, the fraternity. And it's frustrating because you would think that once you put those to bed, that that it would stay dead, but it doesn't. It get keeps rearing its ugly head. Yeah, I don't think I don't think some of that stuff will ever uh, die off. You know, so who knows? And anybody that I talk to, you know, I say, you know, when they talk about, well, you, this is just not this is just not right. This is not good. I said, you don't understand how we're using the word like. Because, okay, like, for instance, we we bring an individual and we, we say that we bring from them from darkness to light, right? And we're talking now, as a born-again Christian, we know that Jesus is the light of the world. And there's no other light than him, right? So when, when we use those verbiage, the Christian community sees that and say, oh, well, you're talking about bringing this individual from... A, a sinner type to to salvation. You're you're bringing them to the light. You're bringing them to Jesus Christ. It's like no, to to a Mason, light means knowledge and information. So when we say we're bringing a candidate from darkness to light, all we're doing is bringing them from having virtually no knowledge of Masonry into having a knowledge of Masonry, and that's all that as Masons we refer to when we're talking about darkness and light. But yet. The Christian community, they have a tendency to turn that around and look at that as a bad thing because we're saying that we're bringing the candidate to light. And that's, that's just one of the instances that I use as a, as an example when I'm talking to folks and explaining to them that the words that we use, the, and the meaning of the words that you think we're using are completely different. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to turn it to Bill because. He's kind of our internet guru of all things that are what's going out there in the Masonic world on, you know, the various platforms. Bill, did you want to weigh in on anything with this? Yeah, I was kind of laughing to myself because back when I was a uh, building manager of a Masonic temple, we used to get those, get those in the mail, you know, a, a white envelope with no return address. I don't know how many times a month and. Uh, and, and and we could almost wallpaper a, a lodge room with all the Jack Chick uh, tracks that we get for the Shriners and the Masons. And maybe it's just my jaundiced view of the world. But I, you know, they may, these people may have 
good intentions, but I, and maybe the people who are actually the foot soldiers out there doing it do have. But in my opinion, in my opinion only, I don't speak for anyone else. But I truly think that the people who come up with this, who preach it, who talk to us and convince their their people about it, I think they have ulterior motives. I've always thought this. Because I really think it's either it's a good way to sell books, it's a good way to build a congregation, it's a good way to get people to listen to them by villainizing by villainizing and using a scapegoat of another group. I mean, it's been done through fascism, it's been done through communism, and we're just in, just basically another um, instance. I'm not saying we, you know, I'm not comparing these people to those evil forms of groups, but I mean, it is to me about the same thing. It just, these, you know, they're, they're trying to build a name. Taxel was trying to build a name. Some of the biggest anti-Masons that you see they're trying, you know, the first thing they'll do is tell you the evil of our ways, but then they'll say, if you want to help us continue our crusade, please write a check and send it to us right here, and we'll make sure that we put it to good use. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, and I'm sure, like you said, I think, I, I'm sure that their intentions are good, and they think they're doing it the right way. But at the same time, the crusades were also headed in, and they did some atrocities um, sure. in the name of God that, you and I, all of us, know that God would never have approved. Well, sure. And like the Spanish Inquisitions, another situation like And I was even thinking, you know, it's like, you know, and I was thinking of it right before you said it. You know, if you go to the Bible and if you take that and say, okay, well, you know, the, the if they ever, if the, these Christians ever get in power, you know, they're going to go up to every household and they're going to take every you know, firstborn child, uh, firstborn male, and they're going to kill him. And they're going to go up there, and they're going to, you know, do something to this person. And I mean, you know, you could cherry pick anything. When we're talking with some of those folks, that's all they've been presented with is stuff that's been cherry picked out and taken out of context, like you said, you know, of our uh, Masonic documents. Yeah, it's it's sad, and most of these people are, you know, they're ignorant of, you know, they're just looking for a way, and they're, you know, they're looking to find a way to God, or trying to find a way to better themselves, or a spiritual meaning, and, you know, and they think, well, you know, I know my grandpa was a Mason, you know, I can't believe he would have been involved in that, and, you know, here's your, you know, here's their grandpa who's, you know, used to give him candy every year at Christmas, and, with, you know, is out tending his garden, and they're trying to picture him wearing a, you know, some kind of um, cloak and thing, you know, trying to murder children and um, sacrificing goats, you know, if they would just stop and think, you know, how silly that actually is, but, you know they, these people. You know they're they're using they're, they're too busy listening to the demagogue to actually use a little common sense. And it's really sad that people can be hoodwinked. Pardon the pun, like that. And uh, that's been happening since there was Masons. I mean, there was the scalded Masons that used to make fun and was you know first started to you know besmirch our name. And I'm, I don't see it ending anytime soon. Sadly. No, and that's all we can do is just uh, those that are open to the truth, we can talk to them about the truth, and the other ones that, you know, approach us, if, if they're willing to have a cordial discussion, I'm more than willing to engage in that, but if they've got well, their mind made up already, there's nothing that I'm going to say that's going to convince them otherwise. And when, you know, when I ran that building, we used to have, and we did it independently, we didn't have a Grand Lodge tell us we had to do it. We would just hold open houses. And we would just fling the doors open. 
And my then wife, she was, give, you know, we all gave tours. I mean, we were all there, getting there all the time except to sleep, just to take care of this building. But this one woman came up to her and says, well, I want to, you know, and I told everybody, I says, you can open any door. We have no secrets. And she asked, come up to my wife, and she asked, she says, I just want to see the room that you guys do the animal sacrifices in. <laughs> and this woman was convinced that we actually go up there and we, you know, do animal sacrifices and, and you know, you know, sacrifice virgins, if you could find any these days. It, and, you know, if you let people go up through this building and they, you know, they'd go into a lodge room and they'd look around and, of course, they're a little confused and you explain what the East is and, what each office does, and if they don't get bored and get that glazed look in their eye talking about it, they really do get interested. And, you know, it's like that old saying how, you know, if you expose sunshine to anything, it's going to disinfect it. And to me, that's that kind of is the same thing. It's, you know, if you bring the, bring it to light, they, how can, and you're honest with them, how can they say, well, you're hiding something? Yeah, exactly. So all kinds of crazy uh, stuff out there. So let me flip gears here a little bit. So Russ, one of the things you said that you found in masonry is that it reinforces and in, in, in ways builds and helps on uh, your Christianity because some of the, I'm assuming, moral themes and, and things we talk about, and, and I have found the same. Can you expound on that a little bit and and? Maybe almost if you're again given the you know the person that walks in the door, why do you become a mason? How do you how do, how does one help the other? Yeah, so and I use two examples really as kind of that because in Freemasonry we teach the fatherhood of God and the universal of brotherhood, and so we don't consider ourselves any different than any other man woman on the face of the earth as far as for you know religion race. Uh, sex, whatever, when we meet on the level, we mean that as Masons. And you don't find that kind of acceptance in the world, um, even the Christian churches. You don't find that kind of acceptance. I always use the example and say, you know, I can go from Idaho, I could go to Virginia, to a lodge that I've never been there. And after a, a an examination, a short examination, so they know I'm a brother in good standing and that I know the work, then I walk into a room of 30, 40, 60, maybe 100 people that are friends. I just don't know their names yet. But that kind of acceptance, uh, accepting me as an equal, as a brother, is something that you don't find in the Christian churches. You go into a Christian church, I mean, because, you know, there's different sects, Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, and they can't agree on all the same things. But if you go into a, we'll say a non-denominational church, a Bible teaching non-denominational church, you know, people will come up, they'll tell you that they're glad that you're there. They'll get to visit with you. But they're eventually going to start asking questions because they want to know, well, are you pre or post-tribulation? Do you believe in baptism, sprinkling, or immersion? You know, all of these different questions that kind of put you into a slot. And and those are basically questions that will say, identifies you as an individual, what you believe in. And that if you don't believe the same way that they do, 
If you have a different perception on how an individual should be baptized or exactly when the tribulation rapture is going to occur, they they look at you as, well, you don't have all the right information. You don't have the knowledge. You don't believe the same way that I do. So they don't accept you as an equal. And I use that as kind of an example that what what Freemasonry teaches us is that God's the creator of all human beings and no one's better than another. And then the acceptance that you get from the Masonic brothers, that, that's honestly one of the reasons why I joined, two reasons why I joined the Masonic Lodge. One was the one that I mentioned before. The other one was the fact, and it's a short it's a short story, I'll just tell it, because it, it made an impression upon me in the local lodge my dad was a member of. We'd go to basketball practice, and then we'd walk up to the lodge hall when the nights that he had meetings, and we'd sit there, and we'd chat with the guys, and I always got a kick out of them just talking back and forth after the meeting, having uh, ice cream and coffee. But I noticed the one individual, he was, for no better words to describe other than this, he was the town drunk. He was a Mason. And he was kind of the joke, the laughing stock of the whole community. But when he walked through, and, and I don't say this to give Freemasonry a bad a black eye or a bad light. I, I, I say this to make a point. When he walked through the threshold of that lodge room door, he was a brother. He was treated as cordially and as friendly as they as they treated the mayor, the county commissioner, who were all m- members of the lodge there. Any other brother that was there, he was treated as an equal. They didn't talk to him uh, or or ostracize him or anything. I noticed that they treated him as an equal. And he, you know, when he was talking, they would listen to him and, and ask him questions and stuff like that. I mean, honestly, he was treated as an equal. Now, as soon as he walked outside that lodge room door, he was the town drunk again. But when he was in that lodge, the brothers treated him just like they did anybody else. And that made a big impression on me. So at the end of our meetings, when the ceremony is, you know, how should Masons meet? And we say on the level and everybody walks down to on the level. That's always been a a real important part of the ceremony and dear to my heart. Because one of the reasons that I joined Masonry is because I seen how these individuals treated each other as equals. Even someone that everybody else kind of made fun of or, you know, was a laughing stock in the community, they treated him as an equal. They didn't treat him any different than they did anybody else. And even out in public, they treated him the same as they would any other brother. So that that was one of the things that also made an impression on me and caused me to want to be a Mason because I seen how these individuals accepted and treated each other on the level. Yeah, it's a great story. Uh, you know, we see that thing here. It's the same thing here. I mean, we have people from all walks of life in the lodge, and uh, you're right. They walk in on the level and hopefully part upon the level. Uh, but certainly while we're in that lodge room, up to me, that it is the great equalizer of society. And I won't go off on a long tangent, but I think we, it's just something society needs uh, even more now than ever. Yeah, and, and it's one of the things that, uh, although our Christian churches try to do that, it's it still, I, I've i never found that same level of acceptance of all their members 
in unison like what you see in the in the Masonic fraternity. Yeah, and it's in a time when our country and arguably our world is more uh, tribal and more polarized and more separate and only able to talk at each other and not with each other. Again, I, I, I look at what we represent and the opportunities we present. This is exactly what society needs, and we just need to, you know, maybe make ourselves a, a little more known and, and what we have to offer uh, to people, you know, of good men in our community. So, well, I went to Idaho two years ago. I know Darren was there this year. I went, I went to Claire to the top to Bonner's Ferry. That was a long ways up there. <laughs> that is the top of Idaho, yes. Yeah, but uh, I'm curious about the history of Idaho Freemasonry. You know, how did it get its start? I assume it probably spun out of another Grand Lodge like they all do, and house membership these days and those kinds of things. Yeah, so basically in Idaho, Masonry was was kind of formed after the gold. Yeah, the gold was discovered in the Boise Basin around 19... 19- or 1862, and Idaho had become a territory in 1863. So gold was discovered just a year before it it became a territory when President Lincoln signed that bill. And then the city of Boise kind of became a supply town for all of the surrounding mountains where the mining towns were at. And the Freemasonry started in Idaho through dispensations and charters from both Oregon and Washington, that established lodges in the mining towns of Placerville, Silver City, Pinerville, Idaho City, and Boise. And those lodges met on December uh, 17th of 1867 in Idaho City. And if you've ever been into Idaho City in the middle of December, I can't for the life of me understand why those brothers traveled there to, to form the Grand Lodge, but they did. Then they they met the following June in 1868, I think I said 19, but anyway, 1868, uh, where they approved the Constitution and the bylaws and then all of their chartered lodges. The Grand Lodge officers were installed a month later in July of 1868. And they chartered uh, five lodges. Excuse me, there was actually six lodges chartered at the very beginning. There was Idaho number one, Boise number two, Placer number three, Pioneerville number four, Owyhee number five, and War Eagle number six. Pioneer lost their charter in 1878, and then Owyhee five and War Eagle six consolidated in 1881 to form Silver City Lodge 13 that's still in existence today. The original building in Idaho City was burned down in a fire that, that basically consumed the whole town in 1865. The current Masonic building was rebuilt and has been occupied since 1865. It's still used in Idaho's uh, annual homecoming. They have an annual meeting up there. And Idaho City is kind of a ghost town. Most of those towns are ghost towns. Um, Idaho City is kind of a tourist ghost town, but there are people that live in, and reside there. But Idaho number one, Placer number three, and Silver City all have annual meetings or homecomings in their Masonic buildings each summer in the mining towns of Idaho City, Placerville, and Silver City. So currently, Idaho has 46 lodges and 2,371 members. Now, I I talked to our Grand Secretary, and he didn't have this information right on the, you know, the 
top of his head, which kind of surprised me because he has most information right at the tip of his fingers. But in, in 1983, when my dad was a grandmaster, uh, I was surprised to come across some documents that he had, that was in a briefcase of his. And this was not, Freemasonry was on a decline then. I remember that. So I don't know at, at the peak how many Masons Idaho had. But in 1983, there were 10,600 members and there were 79 lodges. So actually there were 76 lodges because three of those were historic lodge, lodge research, that type of stuff. So over the course of what, uh, almost 40 years, you know, we've dropped quite a bit in membership, both in, in number of members and number of lodges. So it's, it's, and it's been on a slow decline, but most of you probably have seen those graphs where they show, you know, masonry hit its peak and then it kind of just slowly declines down. And then that's where we're at today. And that, that graph is a uh, real representative of what Freemasonry has been in, in Idaho. Yeah. That graph, you could apply it to any state jurisdiction. I mean, Illinois, we're down to say 52,000 members but probably had upwards of 200 at one point in time. Yeah, so, yeah. Same same thing. And, you know, it's I used to worry about it. I still do. But, you know, none of us are ever going to get those numbers back to where they were. And, it, it, you know, that was just a different time and era. And so, to me, it's like we look forward, plow ahead, and try to bring in one good member at a time. And, you know, hope hopefully they find somebody and then, you know, we level it out and maybe it grows again over, you know, the coming decades. But it's with where society is and people not joining anything, because, again, we've had these conversations on other episodes, but name your organization and what, what hasn't, you know, lost in numbers. And even the, our church is the same. It's, you know, you can see the decline in all of it. But, again, I'm still optimistic about what we do because what we do matters. And I think it's, you know, still setting a good example for you know, our place in the community to, you know, make an impact on good men, send them out there and they do good things in the world. Yep. No. And that's one of the things with a fraternity is that I, I, we, we've got a positive product and it has a positive impact on the individual's lives and in the community around them. Darren, what, what's your thoughts? No, absolutely. Our uh, new grandmaster, Michael Jackson, uh, he just came in uh, as Grandmaster at our Grand Lodge, which was beginning of October, second uh, weekend of October. It's actually the first weekend after the first Tuesday in October is when we have our Grand Lodge. But he was mentioning something uh, that really struck me uh, and was a message that kind of is deviated from some of the previous Grandmasters. And that's the acknowledgement that Freemasonry is local. And that the Grand Lodge is there to support the local lodge. And that basically a local lodge needs to be active because other, if it's not active, it'll die. And uh, it's something we all, I think, struggle with as Freemasons uh, from time to time is, you know, getting your brethren on board to, to do activities and get out in the community and be visible. Because if... Uh, if men don't know you're there uh, and what you're offering, nobody's going to join. So I think it's an important message that uh, that needs to be said. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and that's one of the things where 
I, I don't know if it's the same. I suspect it's probably the same in the demographics, you know, where you guys are at. But what we've noticed out here is that the small towns are getting smaller in a sense, and the big towns are getting bigger. And so our lodges in the smaller communities are really struggling and because they, they don't have the agriculture, mining, and, and the timber forestry base like we used to have. Yeah, I looked at the census data here in Illinois because I've always been obsessed with data. I don't know why, but I just do. But in in every county in Illinois, except Cook County, Chicago area, and the collars there, there's just this out-migration from the small towns. Uh, in, in Illinois' case, a lot of it out of state, but there's just vast swaths of areas that, you know, they, they're losing 10% of their population every decade. And you just get down to some of these towns, there's just not a nucleus enough of, of people, of men that you want in the fraternity to even survive. So in, you know, in every, so you see these consolidations and, and lodges just closing up. And my, you know, my thing, I always hate to see them close, even though I know everything has a, a, a life expectancy at some point. My thing is once they go dark, there's people in that town that would be great Masons, but will never get the benefit of, of seeing the light because they don't know about Freemasonry because there's nothing there anymore. And so that's, that's the, that's the lost opportunity. So, well, let's see what else we had some other stuff we're going to talk about. Let's talk about Boy Scouts. We're going to jump around on our questions a little bit. We were talking about that before we got on the air. And you said you were a scout leader. I'm curious about, because I'm still active in scouts. Bill's, uh, I don't know if you were in scouts, Bill. I don't remember. Darren was active in youth, and, and his boy and my boy were in the same uh, den. And Darren and I have both been Cub Masters and the whole litany and stuff. And I'm curious about your service in scouting. And where do you see parallels between scouting and Freemasonry? Okay, yeah, and, and we chatted a little bit before I think we started recording, but yeah, I am an active scouter. I've been the scoutmaster for a community troop for about 13 years, although there was about three to four years in there when we didn't have enough boys to really have a troop. But one or one or two or three of the boys would go camping uh, occasionally with the adult leaders. And uh, then when the LDS Church exited the scouting program, they're, they're really big around here. There were a number of the boys and the leaders in the local area that wanted to come over and finish their scouting career in, in the community troop. And I thought that was great. I mean, I welcomed the boys. And then I asked the leaders if I could, you know, kind of step back a little bit and have them assume the leadership role for a few years while I was kind of fulfilling my duties as a Grand Lodge officer and making visitations around the state. So right now I'm currently the charter organization representative for the Arco Baptist Community Church. And I'm asked, you know, to help them with the rechartering and sitting in on boards of review and eagle boards of review and things like that. But for the most part, the the leadership, and we have a, a Cub Scout unit as well, but the leaders are pretty much kind of taking care of that. So they've allowed me to kind of step away and, you know, not have to worry about being on campouts every month and things like this. But I, I, I see a lot of commonality with Freemasonry. You know, when you're going camping or you're doing group activities, you learn real quick that working together is important. And even if you don't agree sometimes with a certain idea, you sometimes you have to do it anyway for the group's best interest. And sometimes it works out for the better and sometimes it doesn't. But 
that's life, and we're always continuing to learn. And, you know, you kind of relate to that to our lodge functions, and how many of those are not completely successful, and we learn from that. I mean, we, we have an outdoor breakfast on a day that's freezing cold. It doesn't work very well. But the fraternal bond that scouting op- offers is similar to Freemasonry. Um, I know that when I meet a Master Mason, they've passed through the same ceremony, degrees, proficiencies, etc., that I have. Um, that we meet on the level because we're equal to each other, but no better. So, so in the same way, uh, a Tenderfoot, Second Class, First Class, Star Life, or Eagle Scout, they know that another Scout that has that rank, or an Eagle Scout, has had to achieve all those ranks from Tenderfoot to Eagle Scout, and they've had to earn merit badges and do things along the way in order to be able to qualify for those different ranks. And when they complete their Eagle Project, you know, that they've all had to put in enough work involved to show leadership and something that benefits the community. So as far as for the same same thing in scouting as the fraternal bond that you see leaders mentoring boys, and then in masonry, you have older experienced members with ritual men- mentoring younger members. I see a lot of that as far as for... Uh, good positive role models and instilling into both individuals, the scouts, the moral character that builds them up. And then in Freemasonry, the moral character that helps them become better men. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with you. Bill, were you ever a scout? I can't remember. I was a scout. Well, technically I was, I was a Cub Scout. I went through that and then they had the local troop of Boy Scouts when I got, you know, aged out of the Cub Scouts. They weren't the greatest kids in the world. <laughs> well, you got to remember, it was the seventies. Most of the kids, they, I went to my first meeting, and they were sitting in the top of this church hall, and they were throwing, um, smoking cigarettes, and throwing hymnals out the window. And I thought, well, I really don't think I want to be a part of this, and so I never really went back. <laughs> but I did enjoy Cub Scouts. I really enjoy. I still have some friends today that I was in my was in my den and. It was. It's a great organization. I'm. I will say that it, it is. And uh, one of the things that I love about the scouting program, uh, and, I, and I like this about masonry as well. There's just so much stuff to learn in masonry. The history. I I am mesmerized by individuals that are able to read this stuff, and then they kind of re- can regurgitate it and make sense and compile a great big thick book of three inches, you know, into a, a ten, twelve, fifteen minute talk and it just it makes perfect sense um and, and i envy those individuals that can do that but like with scouting there was always something that you were learning or teaching the the boys and i'll never forget the one time we had we were on a on a winter camp out and uh one of the scout leaders came up to me he goes russ have you ever built a quincy i'm going no and he goes well i'm gonna try it he goes i was reading about it and uh, so i'm kind of curious about doing it and so he, uh, he, he got the boys together and they got their shovels and they just started grabbing a bunch of the snow off the ground. And we probably had, oh, eight to 10 inches of snow that was on that grassy field there behind the LDS church. And they just started piling it up in a great big pile. Um, and this, this snow was so sugary, you couldn't make a snowball with it. I mean, you put it in your hand, you tried to pack it and it was just like sand. It just ran off and, wouldn't pack at all. 
anyway, and then he took sticks, went and got a bunch of willows, uh, small sticks, and he stuck them in. So they were in, in about ten, uh, six to eight inches. I'm probably telling you guys something you already know, but anyway, stuck it in about six to eight inches and then let it set up and harden. You know, just let it sit there for about three hours. And then they went in and just kind of tunneled in through the bottom. And then on the inside, they just started shaving this snow off until he hit the end of, end of those sticks. And then they knew that they the snow was about six to eight inches thick. And so that's where they stopped. And so they, they hollowed out this dome, basically, of snow. And I'm not kidding you. It was strong. That, that snow had set up. In three hours time. And the next morning when the boy, it was like a, an igloo. I mean, I've built an igloo before and those are not easy. The Quincy was much easier to do, but it was like an igloo. It's just a dome of snow and they, they stayed warm in there that night. They just, you know, buttoned it up and with the heat from the, I think there was six or seven boys that were in there. And, uh, uh, the next morning, it took three of them up on top of that thing, jumping up on down, up and down on it really hard in order to get that thing to cave in. I was amazed that that snow set up like that and formed that, you know, um, kind of igloo or that hut. And, and I told Darren, the, the other scout leader, I says, you know what? It just goes to show you, you're never too old to learn something in this. I'd never heard of a Quincy before. And he says, I hadn't, I hadn't either. And he goes, I was reading an article on it. And he goes, I thought, you know, next camp out, we're going to try that. So I, I, I do appreciate the learning aspect of scouting. And it's so neat to be able to teach the boys something and then turn around. And then late on one, later on one of their camp outs, they, they are actually using the taut line or the, or the two half hitch or clove hitch or whatever not they've learned. They're actually using that in the right manner to do a job that they need it to do. And it's like, you know what? That That's rewarding in itself just to know that you've helped them learn something and they've been able to put it to use and, and use it practically. Yeah, no doubt. You know, Darren is our uh, education guru, at least in our group here. He, ha- he has that ability to do, Russ, what you said of taking those complex ideas and breaking it down. Uh, into frankly something I can understand, which you know, so I figure if, if Bill and I can understand it, that's we're usually the lowest common denominator. So that's that's a pretty good thing. But I was going to have Darren maybe weigh in on the education and then you know what his observations are. From some of what you've said. No, I, I agree. And uh, one of the the things I find fascinating also about uh, the connection Freemasonry and scouting is, you know, there are so many influential scouters that were also Freemasons and, you know, case in point, both the gentlemen, I can't remember their names off the top of my head, that were uh, founded the Order of the Arrow were, were Freemasons. And if you, uh, Russ, I'm sure you've seen that ceremony probably uh, several times and have picked up on a lot of the Masonic influence in it. So uh, yeah. I think, you know, it's a, a very... Very interesting relationship, and, you know, to your point regarding, uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed as a, as a Boy Scout was learning about, as you said, the history of scouting, and I remember there was this book that was in my, I went to a parochial school, I was raised Roman Catholic, and there was a book in our library that was probably published, I would say, in the 50s, but it was all about 
Boy Scouts and I, and being a scout, I used to check that book out and I probably read it uh, cover to cover at least 20 to 30 times. It just had different ideas about camping and cooking and how to make different types of fires, knots. I mean, you, you name it, it had basically, you know, it was like scouting 101. And I, man, I wish I could, uh, could remember the, uh, the title of the book because I'd, I'd love to have a copy of it now. It's just, uh, one of my favorite things, uh, you know, to, to read growing up. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that stuck with me, uh, you know, in scouting, uh, there was always for me this wanting that next merit badge or wanting to, to find out more. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of that is translated to me what I do with Freemasonry and my uh, role as a area education officer for the Grand Lodge of Illinois, you know, it's, it's all the pursuit, uh, not only pursuing the knowledge, but then also disseminating it uh, in a way, as Greg said, uh, to to make him and Bill and the low, other lowest common denominators understand. And they're they're selling themselves short, of course. But that's uh, one of the the things that uh, you know I, a, a great parallel I see between both uh, scouting and Freemasonry as well. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I seen I'd, I'd never been exposed to it as a kid, but when I first came across char cloth. And how to make it? I says, "There's no way. I mean, that that doesn't make sense. You can heat heat up that cotton flannel fabric until it's brown, you know, pretty much black, and then just use flint and steel and have it catch a spark, and then get a uh, off of the um, char cloth, then get a bird's nest. You know, you've got that ready, and you get a little fire going. To me, that was just magic. It really was." And and those are kind of the gold nuggets that you come across every once in a while in scouting. You see something like that that's just totally cool and and practical, and yet you come across kind of the same things in masonry. You come across things that just you see and you go, you know what? That is really neat. <laughs> I would never have thought about that or seen it in that light if I hadn't been a member of the lodge. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh Bill, why don't you uh, ask some questions here? I feel like uh, Greg and I have been hogging the spotlight as usual. So uh, why don't you uh, ask Russ some questions, please? I'm not a smart man, but I know what a Boy Scout is. But <laughs> I'm just kind of curious. You know, last year, you know, here in 2020 and now what I've been, I've heard people refer to this year as 2020 Junior. It's affected the entire world. And... Obviously, of course, it's also affected Freemasonry, and it's affected different jurisdictions in different ways. Some have lost, others have taken and stood up to the challenge, and they've either come up with, and they've changed rules and kept going, operating under special dispensations, or they've set up Masonic relief, or uh, various different ways they've stood up to the challenge. How is... Grand Lodge of Idaho and its brothers withstood this withstood this pandemic, and as it and obviously it's probably changed the way you do things. And has you think it's been positive for you guys, or has it been negative? You know, it, it's kind of been a mix of both. Um, the panic pandemic caused a number of issues with Freemasonry in Idaho. Our our grandmaster at the time prudently shut down the Grand Lodge and the local lodges because we honestly didn't know what we were going to be facing. And if it was as bad as it was predicted in some of our lodges, if we lose a few members, that lodge is done. And, and I mean, they would have to close. 
So protecting our membership was kind of one of our high priorities. We had a number of discussions uh, in regards to that. The average age of the Master Masons in Idaho, which is probably similar to other jurisdictions, but our uh, average age is 67 years old, which <laughs> sounds, sounds fairly old. We, we had candidates that were prepared to start, or they were in the process of going through the degrees for their Masonic career. They got put on hold for about eight months. And some of the lodges didn't start having meetings until a few months after things opened back up. So we were shut down in March, and then our junior past grandmaster opened us back up in September of 2020. But there's some lodges that didn't have meetings until a few months after. And there's there's a couple of lodges that are closed temporarily right now because of the COVID cases that's been happening around them. They've they've lost a couple of brothers and they just don't think that it's prudent to be meeting in, in a you know a social public event like that. Our our appendant and concordant bodies were also affected because the edict that came out from the Grand Master was that no Master Mason could attend any Masonic function. And that impacted the Eastern Star, the Amaranth, Daughters of the Nile, uh, Scottish Rite, York Rite, and the Shriners. And many of those organizations meet in the lodge building, and so they were not allowed to use those facilities. And that caused a little bit of contention between the the Grandmaster and some of the concordant independent bodies, but his whole purpose was to protect the members because we just didn't know what we were, you know, uh, going to be facing. It, it, it did show us, though, that virtual get-togethers were possible. We never had any tiled uh, Zoom meetings, but the Lodge brothers themselves, they held their social get-togethers on Zoom. Uh, districts held uh, social meetings, and the Grand Lodge officers, we held discussions on the plans, you know, how to return back to normal, um, the procedures and methods that we were going to require the local lodges to do and meet in order for them to start meeting again and preparing to have a meetings. They were going to have to ensure that their lodge buildings and articles were all sanitized before and after meetings. I mean, there was a whole, we had a whole list of stuff. I'm sure you guys had the same thing about what you had to do in order to start meeting again. Uh, and, and right now, what we're telling the Worshipful Masters, because we had a couple of brothers that passed away because of COVID, and I got a call, and the brother said, uh, Most Worshipful, we need to shut this down. And, uh, you know, I had reservations on that. I, I totally understood where he was coming from. But I said, you know what, we're, we're going to continue to let the power be at the at the local lodges, the worship masters are responsible for their lodge. And so if they, in their the, the district health and organization in their area, if they say no meetings, then it's no meetings. That That's their call because we want the lodges to be able to have their events and and use their best judgment on whether to ha- hold meetings or have, have special activities. Now, we've not had any massive spreader event from any Masonic meeting, which is really good. And we hope to continue to be diligent in preventing this as our lodges and brothers become more active. Some of them have been fairly active and almost meeting and doing everything normal as if they, you know, the, the, the COVID pandemic wasn't around. The one thing it did do is that it showed that we could we could get together and we could socialize and up to that point, not many of us had really, even in our work environment, we hadn't fully utilized a lot of the um, video social meeting um, like Zoom or Skype or 
some of those others, we hadn't really utilized that. And so as a result, now we can pull a meeting together with individuals across the state instead of saying, okay, well, two weeks from now, we're going to meet in Boise. So everybody that can make it, you know, let's meet in Boise. So it's been nice that way, but we, we probably experienced the same thing that all the other jurisdictions had is that we've had, we've lost some individuals that were interested in masonry, just, well, I kind of like, would like to join and see what's going on, but they really, I, I guess maybe their interest wasn't that strong. And so we reached out to them and they said, no, I'm, I'm not really that interested now. And, and that's fine because I kind of look at that as that maybe they wouldn't have made really good members in the first place if they were just kind of somewhat interest seekers and, and didn't really, you know, have that stick em power to, to be a member. They probably weren't going to be a real benefit to the lodges anyways. No, I totally agree. I think if they were just, you know, they would have probably been gone. Either they would have quit, been suspended for non-payment of the dues, or they just would not have shown up to lodge meetings anyway. So you're probably not really out anything. But it sounds like that it was pretty much typical of what mother lodges, grand lodges have had. It's not like you were weathering as fair as everyone else has. That it is ca- did cause problems with is that those lodges that that need to have fundraisers in order to keep their doors open it caused a lot of problems for them because their 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 financial plan unfortunately is to survive and so they they go from one masonic year to the next masonic year and they're just scraping enough to get by i mean they have their breakfast or dinners or whatever in the community fundraisers and types of things and where we had the edict that we couldn't meet or do anything as a Masonic body, it, it caused a lot of problems with the fundraising for a lot of the local lodges. Yeah, I can totally see that. I guess they could have sold hand sanitizer or toilet paper. That would have probably made them the most popular people in town at one point. <laughs> well, you know, we had a we had a deal where the city of Mackey had called up the worship master and said, hey, you know, could you guys put on a breakfast? down here for the rodeo or the bike rodeo or something like that. And uh, they called us like, well, we can't do that as a lodge, but I can call a bunch of the brothers and see if they'd be willing to show up as volunteers. And so we went down there and we put on the breakfast and it wasn't as a lodge. Normally that the money would have been used, you know, to um, go towards replacing the roof or replacing the furnace or carpet or something like that. But so what we did is we just took that money and, and actually donated it to the city. They were building a new skate park or not skate park. They would build a new ballpark and they had to get the, the turf, the grass reseeded. And it was going to cost them about $3,000. And so we said, you know what? We're going to put like three, four breakfasts on this summer and we'll just do it as volunteers. Even though we're Masons, we're doing it as volunteers. We're not doing it as a lodge function. And uh, over the course of the year, uh, we raised about $5,000 to between those activities and some other activities and was able to give them more than enough money to reseed their new baseball field. They were actually going to put the other money in towards uh, bleachers. And they were so appreciative of that. But there again, you know, we had to do things a little differently because normally we would have been doing that to try to help maintain or upgrade some of the stuff in our lodge. 
and you know that is sad. Well, maybe next year they'll be able to recoup even more, and they you know they might get some actual help from the city. You know, sending people to the come uh, patronize them. But I and uh, so we gave that money to the city, and then that fall, which it was last, it was last fall, the all the whole volunteer fire department and a bunch of the EMTs and stuff. They showed up when we were getting ready to put the roof on the building, and those guys went to work. And we got the roof on that thing in one day. Oh, it, awesome. it was amazing. Yeah, I and we're hoping to get a couple of petitions out of the uh, the younger men. They, they've shown an interest. They just haven't uh, come forward and petitioned the lodge. But they they definitely have a positive view of Freemasonry and know a little bit more about what we stand and do. Well, all it takes is one. In fact, I went to a Master Mason degree last sat- this last Saturday night where uh, a deputy sheriff uh, just went through. And apparently, I'm, I don't, I'm not a member of this lodge, but apparently they've got like six or seven uh, police officers who are getting ready to go through that, go through the chair, or excuse me, go through um, the Master Mason degree in this lodge. They're pretty much going to be the lodge by the time this is done, but... I got another question for you while I've got the floor. Since, you know, you're fairly new in the, uh, the Grand East, I'm sure as, you know, while you're going up through the progressive line, you came up with a lot of ideas that you'd like to see achieved during your year as Grand Master of Idaho. Do you have a plan, and what are some of the things you'd like to accomplish during your year as Grand Master? Well, I have a plan. <laughs> Whether it comes to fruition or not, it's hard to tell. Um, but, you know, you see from every every year, you know, the, the Grand Master, of course, we see this in Eastern Star, you know, the Worthy Grand Matron. They all try to put their, their brand or their flavor on Freemasonry to try to make an impact on Freemasonry. And, and I'm approaching this a little bit different. I, I Whatever I do, I'm not going to necessarily impact Freemasonry. What I want to do is I want to make it so that Freemasonry impacts other people. And, you know, we, we heard that Masonry is the best kept secret, and that shouldn't be the case. Uh, we're the world's worst at marketing or advertising. We have a great product that's been used for thousands of years to build better men, and a lot of Masons think that we can't go around and tell anybody about it. Now, I understand that you can't ask a person to join, all right? That's that's kind of our uh, one of our unwritten laws. Um, however, me per- me personally, I can ask a person if they have ever considered becoming a Mason, or I can comment that they live a life that's exemplary, and they live the teachings of Masonry, and ask them if they've ever thought of becoming a Mason. Now, to some Masons, that might seem like it's, I'm stepping over the line, but I haven't asked them to be Masons I've, or, or solicited them. I just asked them if they know anything about Masonry and if they've ever thought to, about becoming a Mason. And it was kind of interesting because... The one brother stated that he says, well, we can't ask them to become Masons, but our wives can. <laughs> but uh, last year, uh, the junior past grandmaster, Steve Zimmerman, had a plus one program, and he challenged the lodges to have a net gain in membership of at least plus one. And he asked me, because that was going to follow a calendar year, if that could continue over into, because it was going to carry over into my year for at least the one quarter. And I said, I, I have no problem with that. In fact, I... I took that program and I'm just enhancing a little bit more to get education programs and then reaching out and supporting our youth. The the educational programs are are going to be helping to work on ritual proficiencies and just any, any kind of an educational deal, just like this, 
that individuals can use at, at their lodge function as an educational activity, but focus on, on ritual proficiencies in the members to get their master's and warden certificates. I, I found when I was appointing district deputies that there were some districts that had very few individuals in the lodges that had a master's certificate. And what Idaho is fairly strict from what I've been told compared to some of the other jurisdictions on our requirements to become a worshipful master. And so it, it's been a challenge to find individuals that, to serve as district deputies, but then some of those lodges are going to be hurting because they've only got two or three individuals that are masters, or excuse me, have a master's certificate, and they're not they're not young brothers. I mean, they're fairly old, so they, they need some of the young, their younger members to step up. But what, what kind of puzzled me is that I, I noticed that the majority of our Demolay, our Job's Daughters, and our Rainbow Girls don't join our adult Masonic organizations. And these are upstanding young individuals that enjoy their youth programs. And so I've never really understood, you know, quite why they don't join our Masonic adult organizations. And so in the state, it's been kind of funny. I've, I've challenged each Mason to get out and support our youth organizations. I've given all of them that I've come in contact with a wooden nickel. And they got to take this to a youth meeting and get it signed by the master counselor, worthy advisor, honored queen, and then um, present that to the district deputy, who then is going to give them a metal coin that's just like the wooden nickel. Uh, and then they're recording their name so that we're going to have a drawing at our next annual communication for a bunch of different door prizes. But the whole purpose is to get our members out there to support the youth. To and, and there's another aspect of this as well, and that's to have the members be out there because they're a good positive role model for many of our young people. And, and a lot of those young people don't have a good male role model in their life. So it's to try to get them out there and get them focused where Demolay look at, look at, at the Master Mason and they go, you know, I want to be like that guy. I want to be a master mason, or or when the Job's daughters or Rainbow Girls are looking for a spouse, that they look at at a master mason and say, you know what? I want somebody that's worthy of becoming a master mason. I want somebody similar to that individual. And so, hopefully, we're going to bridge that gap between our youth organizations and our adult organizations. You know, we go to the youth organizations, and we see the same ten, twelve, you know, fifty people. You, you go to their annual communications or their conclaves or their assemblies and grand sessions and you see the same individuals there in a, in adult leadership uh, supportive advisory roles that have been there the last four or five years and the master masons that have never attended a, a youth organization they're missing out on one of the most fun things that they can do it's honestly been one of the highlights of my life in being able to work as an associate guardian for a Bethel and then also as a dad advisor for, for Demolay. The young individuals, the young folks, they appreciate us. They love us. We just need to get more Master Masons out there to support them. You know, it's funny when you were talking about, you know, their wives could I, when I was still a fairly young Mason, uh, an older brother was telling me that that was just exactly the case when he was back in like the 50s and 60s. He says a lot of brothers, when their son would hit 21, their um, 
they would wake up in the morning on their 21st birthday and laying on the breakfast, uh, the plate of the, the plate when they were about to have breakfast was a petition. And the mother would say, you know, she says, your father can't ask you to become a Mason. She said, but there's nothing stopping me from asking you to become a Mason. I will say that there's been a couple of brothers I, you know, talked to and, and then one of the brothers says, no, he goes, when I, I was my, and I know it's 18, you know, they can join when they're 18. So he says, on my 18th birthday, I come up to the breakfast table and he goes, my dad, my dad, uh, slapped a petition down in front of me and told me, he goes, fill it out. You're going to become a Mason. But you know, the, uh, you know, Kansas had, they initiated, and I know several grand lodges adopted this, including my home grand jurisdiction of Indiana. And I'm not saying this is for every you know, jurisdiction, but I think it's a great idea. They set up this. <laughs> it's, you're not asking them to become a Mason, but if you know somebody in the community, like um, your local grocery store owner or a mechanic or somebody, he's not a Mason, but you know he'd make a really great Mason, and you can't ask him. You can't. He's not taking the hint. You can go up there, and you can. It's kind of like you go up there, and you fill out this. Uh, form, and you go up, and then the the lodge will vote on this this form, yay or nay, and then they s- send out a letter to this person, to this man, and it's kind of like a pre pre approved credit card in a way. It says, "Look, we know we're not asking you, but if you ever consider the idea of ever becoming a mason." Come by, you know, show us this letter. We'll talk about it. And after talking about it, if you're still interested, we'll be happy to explain the, the, the process to you. It's not, you know, you're not asking them. You're not trying to entice, you know, you're just saying, hey, you know, you're already approved if you wish to come in. And if you'd like to hear more about it, stop by and we'll talk to you. And I think it's a great idea. I know there's been a lot of brethren that's, you know, used that and it's worked out really well. And I also know a brother who, he doesn't ask them, but he will go up there and he'll put his hand on the guy's shoulder. He'll say, you know, I think you'd make a great Mason. He says, if you ever get interested, let me know. I'll talk to you about it. Now, that's not asking. You know, there's several ways around this silly rule that we have. So, you know, we can't use that as a crutch. No. Well, and then there's another, one of the other brothers that I know, he said, you know, I waited 30 years for my dad to ask me to be a Mason. And he says, and I, you know, so I, I asked him the one day, he goes, Dad, how come you've never asked me to become a Mason? He goes, son, I can't. You have to ask me. Well, look at Abraham Lincoln. That was one of the things that he said, why did he never become a Mason? He said, well, nobody's ever asked me to. So, I mean, there's a lot of different things. But, you know, it's just one of those things that we just, you know, we keep hanging on to. And some of these brethren, bless their heart, they want to hold it to the leather of the thing. And Unless the guy comes out, stands on a stack of Bibles with a megaphone, I want to be a Mason. You know, it ain't, you know, you know, but it's just, you know, different times. And well, if I'm, and if I'm going to get in trouble for, for doing something, let me get in trouble for talking about Freemasonry to an individual and just mentioning to them that I think they'd make a good exactly. Mason. Exactly. It's a lot easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. <laughs> And, and Darren I and Greg and Bill, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and chat with you guys and help you out. Russ, I just wanted to, I'll just go ahead and I want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to join us and talk about Freemasonry. Hopefully, maybe uh, we can have you on again at some point. 
and just wanted to say it's been a real pleasure to get to to know you and uh if you ever have anything else you want to contribute to the blog you know just uh shoot me an email i loved having that article that you uh you uh gave me to help me fill in the blanks with arco because i was really really curious uh you know about that story and i appreciate you uh taking the time to get me that information and to our listeners i just want to say thank you uh for taking time to listen to another episode of meet act and part if you like what we're doing uh, please support us on patreon every little bit helps us uh continue to bring you this education and uh for greg myself and bill just want to say Thanks again for listening to another episode of Meet, Act, and Part. Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet, Act, and Part.